electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. Hi, everybody, and welcome to The Exchange. I'm Kelly Evans. Here's what's ahead. More than half of Americans now think we're heading into recession. And if history is any guide, they'll be proven right. But that history doesn't cover inflation spikes like the one we're living through now. So we have stock picks for whichever kind of market you want to bet on. Growth, value, and or defensive. One area that's clearly facing challenges, of course, is the housing market. We'll talk to the CEO of Rocket about how his company can make money in this rising rate environment. Plus, our trader today is pretty worried about earnings season. So we're turning three buys and a bail on its head. We're going to get three bails and just one buy instead. We look forward to that a little bit later on. But let's start with a check on these markets with the Dow up 223 points, the S&P up 37, the Nasdaq flying up 237. That horrible PPI report this morning up 11 percent year on year, not facing this market too much, which is still focused on yesterday's softer core CPI reading and hopes that inflation has, quote unquote, peaked. The Nasdaq is leading the gains. It's up 1.8 percent today. And the semis are leading the rebound there with Qualcomm, NVIDIA, NXP and AMD. NVIDIA previously down 20% in a week. It's up almost 3% today. Apparel names also seeing some excitement like Gap, PVH, Lululemon, and American Eagle all jumping 5 to almost 10%. Gap, in fact, is on pace for its best day since October of 2020 on heavy volume. It's the one that's up about 9.8%. Plus, both the stay-at-home trade and the reopening trades are working today. So you have Zoom and Peloton up 5 to 7%. But so are the travel names, casinos, airlines, the dining names we picked, Marriott, you just heard them mention there at the end of halftime, up 7%, Delta, Brinker, both up 5%. So between retail, restaurants, and travel, investors seem to be betting that the consumer is pretty bullish. But guess what? The average American actually is bearish as they've only ever been when we're headed into recession. Steve Leisman is here with those details. Steve? Yeah, unfortunately, Kelly, the survey finds Americans harboring some of the most downbeat views on the economy since the recovery from the great financial crisis. And some of these attitudes are in line with those we've only seen during recessions. This is according to the latest CNBC All-America Economic Survey. The survey finds 47% believe that the economy right now is poor, the highest since 2012. 17% say it's excellent good, the lowest level since 2014. And 26% say the economy will get better, again, the lowest since 2016. And that is not, unfortunately, the worst part of it. 56% say there'll be a recession in the next year. You can see here, it's a level. Follow this red line across and look at the shaded area, which is a recession. We don't ever get to a level that high unless we're actually in a recession. You have to go back to 08 to find a higher number right now. The pessimism extends to people's views of their own personal financial situation. Sometimes we don't see that. We do this time. 22% say they're getting ahead. 13% say they're slipping behind. 53% say they're staying put. This is the number here that's really worrisome. More than one out of 10 believe personally their financial situation is falling backwards. Between the war in Ukraine and soaring inflation, plenty of reasons to be pessimistic. And 84%, Kelly, say they're economizing now to make ends meet. I have never before 
bet against the American people. I hope they're wrong. Well, and, but do we have this? It's not like we know what they would have said in the early 1980s, right? So we don't have that. But yeah, it, basically, any time in recent history, they have felt this way. We're going into a recession. Or we've been in one. Or we've been in one. Right. Exactly. Sounds pretty bad. But time and again, we've heard that people have horrible views on uh, inflation, that they're blaming the president, among other factors for it. You know, the Ukraine war, you name it but that they're not necessarily acting as if that downturn right. is self-evident. Right. You know and what I mean? There are mental reasons for this and fiscal reasons, because people still have $2 trillion of savings that they can wind down to make ends meet. I think the story here, when I look at this, is not that we've hit these numbers one time. And I think we need to report it when they come out like this, but they need to be sustained. It is possible for people to be very depressed and wind up wandering the malls. It's entirely possible. Um, I don't know that this happens. Sometimes. sometimes you do have big hits to, to sentiment and people end up still continuing to shop. We need a term. I know people are saying inflation recession, but for the idea that we might see that growth, that nominal GDP growth, you know, we might see earnings that are fine and what have you. And, and consumers continue to be furious about what's happening. And I don't know what to call that. It might not be a it, maybe it is going to be a real GDP. I would recession, like to name but... it after my, my my late father, Marvin. Because he was a guy that would drive 20 miles to save two cents on gasoline. <laughs> there is this very strange phenomenon. Remember, Kelly, 3.6% unemployment. We had 7% growth in the fourth quarter. We've been coming back one of the tightest labor markets of all time. And people are depressed. So what you have is you have 7% of spending, or call it 20 if you want to include food in there, of food and gas, governing 90% of how we feel. And it's going to spread, though, now. I mean, that's what I find most interesting. It spreads throughout services. You have people seeing the cost of what they're paying for swim lessons or you name it go up because once labor is the common factor, then everything can move higher. Right. And labor is only one factor, right? That ends up, you're right, pushing up a whole broad range of things. You still have knock-on effects. We saw the PPI this morning, knock-on effects from the Ukraine war. We have a new lockdown in China. We've had reports this week about all kinds of problems in the agricultural business. I saw uh, citrus and the CPI yesterday go up by 3%. Those are big numbers. Those are going to hit people. Let's just hope it's a couple months worth of this and that we start to see a little daylight on this. Right. And that's before the consumer really changes his or her mind about how they're going to spend. What do you call a Marvin recession? Yeah. I, I don't I'd know like if to name something nice in, in my late father. Say, but I just, I just think of him when it's like, Dad, you just spent $3 to go save two cents. Right. But, but that's the way a lot of them. The Marvin feel. mindset. Well, the Marvin it. mindset, exactly. <laughs> Steve, thank you very My much. Pleasure. Steve Leisman. Let's go to Rick Santelli. He is watching the bond markets, which have reacted pretty well to yesterday's CPI report and then this morning's PPI data. Just got the results of a 30 year auction after the 10 year yesterday went pretty poorly. Rick, how'd it go? It seems like the only thing lately that makes yields go up, even for a small period of time, are crummy auctions, and this one qualifies again. D plus, dog plus, a little better than yesterday's tenure, but not much. Let's go through it. This is the last of $100 billion in coupon supply in the form of $20 billion, 29-year, 10-month bonds. I will call it 30-year bonds. The yield, 2.815. And even with the one-issue market trading at 2.80, we could see it tailed and not in a good way. All the metrics were very close to 10 auction average. You could argue that the direct bidders was a bit stronger, 18.9 versus 18% 10 auction average. And the dealers took a little bit less, but it really priced sloppy. So there's where your D-plus comes in. You know what's fascinating here is we have a holiday weekend. Uh, Europe has a four-day weekend. Tomorrow's the ECB meeting, and the market isn't at all pleased with the way they've been 
acting, there's a lot more hawkishness starting to creep in, just like it was with our central bank and our markets. And all that's creating a bit of avoidance. So even though yields have mostly been going down the last couple of days, don't be fooled. Inflation's hot and the auctions, well, they're not going very well as of late. Kelly, back to you. All right, Rick, thank you very much. So if Americans are bearish, the Fed is hawkish, and inflation is soaring, what's the best strategy for your investments? Our next guest says you don't have to pick just one. He's got picks for playing growth, value, or for being defensive right now. Joining me is Kevin Walsh. He's the president and CIO of Henyon & Walsh Asset Management. Kevin, good to see you again. And uh, do, do you favor one of these in particular? I mean, it's been a very difficult and volatile start to the new year, Kelly. Consider that of the first 68 trading days of 2022, 19 of those have involved a daily move of 1.5% or more for the S&P 500. That's nearly 30% of the time. So for those investors who are now looking to get their portfolios back in shape after a very difficult first quarter where the S&P lost 4.6%, we might suggest a barbell approach, incorporating some value-oriented investments on one side of the barbell, growth-oriented investments that have been beaten up the most thus far on the other side of the barbell, and then some defensive positioning in the middle, providing for dividend income and downside protection. Because I'll tell you what, Kelly, these days of short-term bouts of volatility aren't behind us just yet. So in other words, you want each of these three in your portfolio right now. So let's run through some of the names. Growth, what comes to mind? Why should people have exposure there right now? Sure. And again, growth's been the most beaten up thus far in 2022. We saw a little bounce back in March, which gave some investors hope and perhaps believing there's some now attractive entry points for growth-oriented investments. So I picked three stocks from three different Smart Trust UIT strategies. For growth, I'm looking at the financial sector and BlackRock. BlackRock, of course, beat their earnings estimates for Q1 by about 7% as they report this morning and also have a yield of about 2.4%. For the value side of that barbell approach, how about the defense supplier Lockheed Martin trading at a multiple of just 14.4 with a trailing 12 dividend yield of 2.3%. And then in the middle of that barbell, the infamous chocolate maker Hershey from the consumer staple sector with a trailing 12-month yield of 1.6%. You don't have to be all in for value, for growth, or defensive. Perhaps you want to adjust those allocations based upon your own risk tolerance or investment objectives, but certainly some combination of those threes should prove well for investors over the balance of 2022. What about the reopening trade? Does it make sense to you that one would keep working here? Where, where would that fall? Or is that in its own category? I think parts of the reopening trade might fall in the growth category. If you look at some of those e-commerce names that have been really beaten up thus far, a lot of people thought that those were historically the stay-at-home trade. But keep in mind now, the paradigm has now shifted. Americans are now shopping more online than ever, even after the pandemic. So some of those names, those growth-oriented names in that area, may be worthy of consideration just as much as the technology sector, those revolutionary providers of technology, recognizing that over the past four rate hike cycles, Kelly, information technology on average has provided the best total returns across those rate hike cycles. What so maybe you, now is the time to start getting back in technology. Sure. What about financials? As we've seen JP Morgan um, notably underperforming the market today, a place where people have wanted to go in the value sector and yet one that has struggled with flattening yield yeah. curves and the like. W w what do you do with that one? 
I, I still believe that the smaller cap regional banks will benefit from a rising rate environment, certainly with their spread businesses. Some of the big money center banks are certainly getting beat up thus far in 2022 and may, may not perform as well as those regional banks. But remember, for the growth side of my barbell approach I suggested earlier, I chose a company from the financial sector that isn't necessarily involved in traditional banking, but BlackRock, which has this diversified asset management business right. and also pays an attractive income. So maybe that's an area to look at. Do you think or care uh, whether inflation has peaked? In other words, does it matter whether we've seen the most extreme readings or simply the fact that we continue to get this you know, much higher than targeted pressure? It, something suggests to me that there's more inflation ahead. Consider that PPI this morning came in at 11.2, CPI yesterday at 8.5%. Since PPI is a forward-looking indicator, perhaps producers now pass on some of those differential to consumers in the months ahead. So I don't believe we've peaked. I think inflation is going to remain elevated for some period of time. But with that said, there are still opportunities for investors in an inflationary environment, recognizing that the Fed is going to do their best to kind of combat that inflation by shrinking their balance sheet and also raising short-term interest rates. All right. A barbell with a meaty handle or something in the middle there. Kevin, <laughs> thanks so much for your time. It's good to see you again. My pleasure. You too. Kevin Mon. Coming up, Bitcoin is back above 40,000 today, but how much damage was done with that break below 40? We'll get a technical look at the charts with Block Tower's Mike Buccella. Plus, our trader has a long list of bails ahead of the busiest part of earnings season. The names and the rationale, plus one buy that will benefit from these inflationary times. The exchange is back after this. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. Welcome back, everybody. Want to take a quick look at shares of Synopsys, which are sharply lower uh, from their highs on the session. Now turning negative, there have just been reports that it is being probed on allegations. It's past technology to Chinese firms, including Huawei. The stock already down 14 percent this year, now down by three quarters of a percent on the session. Again, this is Synopsys, ticker SNPS. Now, meantime, even as inflation has surged over the past year, Bitcoin down about 40 percent. It's back above $40,000 today after breaking below that level earlier this week. It's also been behaving more like a tech stock than a gold substitute these days. This year, its correlation with the Nasdaq 100 and stock prices generally has increased. 
leaving investors to wonder, is Bitcoin just trading like any other risk asset? Let's bring in Mike Buccella. He's a general partner at Block Tower. Mike, it's good to see you. And um, if Bitcoin is just another tech stock, so to speak, then what's so special about it? Yeah, so, well, <laughs> it trades as a tech stock because it's still, I think, achieving its position in a, in a terminal state of value, so a store value asset. But if my, you know, if my trading hat on, I look at oil and that gas collapsing off their highs. FinTech is off 40% year to date. Emerging cloud index is down something like 25% year to date. You have Ethereum and Bitcoin down 18 and 14% respectively. So even if you do hold it in the risk part of your portfolio, which I think many people still do hold it squarely in the risk part of their portfolio, you have to be pleased with the relative outperformance relative to right tail risk assets more broadly. I mean, if I put my investor hat on, I'm sorry to interrupt, put my sure. investor hat back on. I mean, we just had a, lo- a massive Bitcoin conference in Miami, 30,000 people, well, 30,000 tickets sold, hundreds of thousands of people down here, large corporations, regulators. So if I think about my investor hat, near term, it seems fairly range bound. You want to kind of own, you want to own the wings, you want to own Gamma because we're not sure it's taking direction from the macro market. So you want to be Delta hedged in that sense. But I think from an investor standpoint, I think we're still squarely in growth mode. So I think medium to long term, there's still this is still a great area to accumulate. But in the near term, it's going to be pretty choppy. Delta hedged. I love it. Um, I was going to say that, you know, this is if we look at Bitcoin as a liquidity proxy, it's going to be facing a tough slog because liquidity is obviously going to further recede in the coming, I don't know, at least 12 months. Does it matter how much of that is, quote unquote, priced in? Um, does it simply become a headwind because there's just less liquidity available to support those prices? What do you think? Yeah, so listen, we're seeing deleveraging across the board. Rates are hiking. Liquidity is exiting the system. We're seeing that across risk assets. I talk to institutional allocators, traditional allocators all day, every day. The risk asset allocations are subsiding. But where we don't see any any meaningful degradation is in the demand for digital assets. And so we still continue to see an onslaught of dollars trying to come into the space. So while the risk asset allocation in the portfolio may be coming in, there's still incremental de- demand to initiate or re-up positions in digital assets. And I think that's more a function of things that are happening maybe below the Bitcoin surface, where there's an enormous amount of innovation. We have emerging areas, things like real-world lending, which is an interesting term because all lending in traditional finance is real-world lending, but in crypto, bridging the gap between crypto finance and traditional finance, there's an emerging subset of protocols. You have companies like Maple, which is a protocol originating $250 million of loans a month uh, and, a, and, a, and a profitable protocol. I don't think you have most of the new, the new entrants to the NASDAQ are not even profitable companies. And here we have profitable protocols that are starting to emerge and really disrupting traditional financial primitives like the lending market. Sure. So let's talk prices for a second. You say it was actually 43000 when we fell below that that triggered a lot of liquidations. What are the important levels to watch now? How much damage was done by the drop below 43 or even 40000 So, I mean, there's an enormous amount of, te- of TA, technical analysis, you can, you can look at. You can draw lines on charts till you're blue in the face. The reality is 40000 is a pivotal level. We've regained that level. Um, we think from here, again, we, we really are, are, you know, indifferent to price direction because I think understanding that you want to own the tails. Similarly in risk markets, I mean, generally right now, I think the market is sitting on the end of its chair trying to figure out, does the CPI print matter? Does the PPI print matter? What actually matters from a market impact standpoint? Because the reality is most of this inflation narrative that's actually culminating in numbers today was happening last year. So things like cryptocurrency, things like growth assets, they pre-traded the the inflation data. And now we're in a new environment where people are trying to understand what the rate hike cycle looks like. And is that completely off from the predictions of the market generally? Because that's 
should be effectively priced in. So I think we're trying to understand what that what that cycle looks like, the impact on markets, the impact on liquidity, and 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 uh, and so on. But gut reaction: Where are we going next if we go back below forty thousand? Where would the kind of logical stopping place be? Um, we've seen pretty significant support at 38. Um, it depends on your time frame. So if you're looking super short term, I would say 38 seems like a reasonable, that seems like a support level for the market. Um, but again, I, I near super near term price predictions. I think we're in this sort of coiled spring, uh, predicament in broader markets, and we're going to basically blow out one way or another in risk assets. And, and so the levels of 38 or 42 on the upside, they may not hold, right? So we may blow right through those numbers. And then you see basically shorts getting liquidated on the upside or levered longs getting liquidated on the downside and those exacerbate those movements. So, you know, I think whichever direction we, we head in, it's probably a more volatile movement than you've seen before. So owning volatility, again, in a delta hedge manner might make more sense now while also playing those idiosyncratic growth parts of the market that exist in the public side um, but also looking at what's happening in the private side of the markets. I think those those two areas on the venture and hedge fund side are starting to inc- intermingle a lot more these days. Very interesting. Mike, as always, thanks so much. We appreciate it. Thank you. Mike Buccella of Block Tower. Still ahead, those rising rates are also putting pressure on mortgage lenders. This chart says it all. As the 30-year fixed mortgage rate has risen, shares of rocket companies have gone the other way. The CEO joins us live with more on the fallout ahead. But first, China is battling its most severe COVID outbreak since early 2020, triggering intense lockdowns across the country. Shortages will bring you the very latest. The exchange is back after this. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. CNBC has quick and easy to understand business news updates at the open midday and close every weekday. Markets, money, and more from Wall Street to Main Street. I'm CNBC's Jessica Ettinger. Follow and listen to CNBC Business News Updates wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, everybody, and welcome back to The Exchange. I'm Tyler Matheson, and here's what's happening at this hour. The Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen is calling on countries not to undermine sanctions against Russia or risk facing consequences on their own. She called on China to use its special relationship with Russia to help end the quote, war in Ukraine. I dropped my microphone. What a rookie mistake, but we'll get it uh, solved here. I'm just going to do this. Yellen also said China's standing in the world would suffer if it fails to act. Schools remain closed as a wildfire continues to burn in drought-stricken southern New Mexico. At least 150 structures have been destroyed. The fire has spread to more than 4,100 acres. Wind gusts of up to 90 miles an hour have fanned the flames there. On the news with Shepard Smith tonight, Russia claiming new gains in the besieged city of Mariupol, while two Scandinavian countries, Finland and Sweden, consider joining NATO. The latest on the war in Ukraine, that is tonight at 7 p.m. Eastern time. And in Berlin, a grand dame celebrating a big birthday. 
Fatu, the world's oldest known gorilla, turned 65 today. Zookeepers uh, gave her a cake made of cooked rice, vegetables, berries, and cottage cheese. Fatu has become something of a legend. Why not? 65 gorillas in the wild don't make it uh, often past their 40s. That's amazing, Kelly. It's, this is going to be a mic drop, ladies and gentlemen, really right here. Always done with such style and skill. I love it. Tyler, thank you very much. I'll see you soon. Meantime, the Biden administration extending the mask mandate for airplanes and transit for 15 more days. The current order was set to expire this Monday, but will now remain in place through May 3rd, despite airlines repeatedly asking the White House to drop the requirement, along with other COVID restrictions, as travel demand gets back to normal. And all this comes as China battles its most severe outbreak of COVID since early 2020, now going so far as to designate lockdown violations as crimes. Eunice Yoon in Beijing with the latest. Eunice. Thanks, Kelly. Well, Shanghai police warned residents today that they are criminally responsible if they, for example, leave their house and live in a high-risk area, if they refuse a COVID test, or if they post what the authorities deem to be fake information or videos about the COVID lockdowns. Now, these harsh, the harsh guidance comes as state media quote President Xi Jinping as saying that the zero COVID approach is the best plan for Shanghai. And as he reiterated again, that there would be no relaxation of COVID controls for China. Now, despite Shanghai's strict lockdowns, uh, the daily COVID infections there uh, hit another all-time high, and the lockdowns continue to weigh on the economy. A trade data for March revealed a surprise drop in imports due to slowing demand. Kelly, this is the first decline since August of 2020. Wow. And that economic impact, you have to wonder how that affects their ability to carry on with zero COVID at the same time, Eunice. You wonder, are they in the same predicament the U.S. would have been in March of 2020, where if this very contagious strain suddenly spreads throughout China, it will overrun the hospital and healthcare system? Right. And so um, right now, based on the comments that we're hearing from the leadership, especially President Xi Jinping, that it, the leadership is prioritizing the COVID fight, which to them means these lockdowns over the economic cost. Although he has mentioned before that they, that he wanted to make sure that the economic cost would be minimal. Uh, what we are seeing, though, also is a little bit of a tweaking to some of the quarantine uh, protocols. Uh, local media have been reporting that the uh, to, that China is going to now look at shortening some of the quarantines for eight cities as a pilot program, shortening the, the quarantine from 14 days to 10 days. So this is going to last for about a month. And the purpose of it is to try to manage the shortage of quarantine beds and the overall costs. So not really a whole scale change at all of zero COVID, but more of a tweaking around the margins. Right. Even as residents get more and more desperate, is that situation easing at all, Eunice? We keep hearing about shortages on shelves at grocery stores and people screaming and trapped in their apartments. And it, it sounds pretty grim. How is it? Is it as bad as it's being portrayed? Yeah, it's 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 pretty bad in Shanghai. I mean, uh, in another another city such as Guangzhou, people there have been hoarding a lot of food, but say that that for, for like for the most part, they've been able to get 
um, a steady food supply. But in Shanghai, the situation is really dire. And I think one example of that is that the Shanghai official TV station had made a big show about how they're going to have a variety program to celebrate um, how much progress they've been able to make to contain the outbreak. But that program and the fact that they were going to hold it just came under such criticism from the public that eventually the organizers had to cancel the event. So, so you could just see that people are really, really angry um, about the the way um, the Shanghai authorities and that the overarching policy of zero COVID has affected their daily lives. Absolutely, uh, it, fascinating. Uh, perhaps still more political fallout ahead. Eunice, thanks so much. Our Eunice, and we appreciate it. Still ahead, three names my next guest says are in the middle of an earnings destruction setup. You are looking at a chart of one of them already down 40% this year. The other names she's shorting and one stock she is buying because of higher commodity prices. Prices. It's three bales and one buy today with Danielle Shea. We're back in a moment. Welcome back, everybody. Take a look at shares of Walgreens Boots, which are jumping on reports of Ambani's Reliance, the Indian conglomerate, said to be studying a bid for the company. This is a $38 billion market cap. The shares up only about 1.3% on these reports, trading just under $45 a share, but continuing to move higher as investors digest the possibility and likelihood of what would be a major takeout uh, in the retail space, again, Walgreens boots up about 2%, $45 a share, possible takeout uh, by Ambani's Reliance, the Indian group. Meanwhile, recession fears and surging inflation are already taking their toll this earnings season, and it's only just begun. So we're flipping the script today and offering up three names to bail on as our traders see signs of earnings destruction, and one name that could be worth a look. Joining me now is Danielle Shea. She's director of options at Simpler Trading. Welcome back, Danielle. Three bails and a buy, which is not a great sign overall here. Uh, but let's start with your first one, which is PayPal. We spend a lot of time on this stock because it has been a battleground. The value investors are itching here, uh, but the shares continue to struggle. They're lower today on news that Walmart is poaching the CFO for the same position. Shares are down more than 40 percent this year. They've got competition across fintech. You are bailing, Ms. Shea. Yes, that's correct. You know, Kelly, this earnings season is going to be absolutely critical for the health of the overall market. And we've really started to see this last quarter. When you look at PayPal in particular, you now have three quarters in a row where the stock has tanked on earnings and each time it's getting progressively worse. I know people are trying to come in and buy the dip on this, but this stock is in a downtrend and I just don't see any way that it can possibly rally prior to the report, given the reactions to the last three reports. So I'm short this stock. I do think it's a bail if you're a long-term buyer here. I'm trying to trade it to new 2022 lows. So say that again, so we're around $100 a share right now and you're looking at where is kind of the exit target? I'm looking at about $85, $90. Wow. Okay. All right. She putting her money where her mouth is. Uh, PayPal gets a, a short in Danielle's book today. Let's move along to Carvana, which is down more than 50% this year. Of course, it's been this huge, amazing, super hot auto market, but now in the middle of a reset. You mentioned, look, it's not, still not profitable. That's a big red flag. What else is a red flag for you here? 
So with this setup in particular, I'm looking at any stock that rallied exponentially throughout 2022 and 2021, and especially the stocks that just really couldn't measure up because they're just not making money. When you look at Carvana, that does fit the bill. We've seen a major fall in this one. I mean, at one point it was $376 a share. Uh, but I think also they have a lot of headwinds. You know, you have used car prices that are going through the roof. It's difficult to get a new car. So, you know, why would in, why would anybody sell their car if they can't buy a new one? So, you know, you have those issues. But also, if you look at the technicals and you look at the way that it's reacted to earnings, yes, last quarter it did trade higher by 7% after earnings, but it's just been down and down ever since. Hmm. So I think we have more downside ahead. Um, and I think that if this breaks the lows right here, we're going to see a nice flush. Okay. And it's just around 106. So a similar price to PayPal, which we mentioned a moment ago. And I have a similar question for Carvana and the next one, which is Wayfair. Wayfair is also down about 40% this year, more than 60% off its highs. Um, huge exposure to higher rates and the housing market, obviously. Would these still be candidates for shorts? And I know that's what you're saying, that they are. But after the moves that we've already seen, there's probably a lot of people wondering, OK, at some point, you know, we start looking for the value play here. Why don't you think we're there yet for Wayfair? I just don't think we're there primarily because of the technical pattern. I mean, yes, you are going to start seeing buyers come in on some of these beaten down stocks at some point, but I'm just not seeing buyers. We're continuing in a downtrend. If you look at the way that investors have reacted to earnings, I think that that's really critical. People like to look at EPS, but I think that you also need to look at the way that the stock traded after an earnings report. If you look at Wayfair in general, you know, you see last quarter it gapped down 16.9 percent on earnings. The quarter before, before that, 7 percent on earnings. That is showing that investors are not happy about what they have to say. And this company also losing money and they haven't been doing well in the current inflationary environment. You know, you have problems with the supply chain. And I don't think that people are rushing out to buy new furniture, given the fact that, you know, their grocery bill is exploding. So I do think that we can see lower prices in Wayfair. And I'm actually looking for a break of 100 and a trade down to about 90. Does it mitigate your bearishness at all? The fact that uh, Bed Bath has kind of, I think the last I checked, it might have been positive on the session, even when they had really terrible EPS results. You know, their comps, they were talking about being down 20 percent and yet the stock kind of hanging in there. Well, you know, Bed Bath & Beyond is an interesting take because this one actually has a lot of high short interest. And so what will happen with that stock in particular is if there's news that's not great, but not terrible, you see a little bit of short covering. And so this is actually one that I will keep on my list uh, for any potential type of good news, because sometimes you can get a quick pop higher on a short squeeze. As far as the actual news is concerned and the possible good news in Wayfair, with any of these setups that are on my earnings destruction list, that definitely happens sometimes where the earnings report is actually a little more positive than I anticipate. But because of the overall downtrend and because of the overall trend in earnings as well, if that does occur, what I love to do actually is I like to enter the trade post earnings and short it for a continued move lower in the next couple of weeks. All right. So that brings us to your final call. It's the only buy. It's Caterpillar. Pretty straightforward story here. You think they benefit from rising commodity prices. How bullish are you? You know, I like Caterpillar here. I don't think that, you know, we're going to see any type of massive explosion in the stock. It's a nice, slow and steady 
winner. It's been consolidated for, consolidating for a while. But the reason why I like it is because it's a large cap stock in this overall market environment, it's really volatile. It's really best to stick with companies that have a long history that are leaders in their field. And with Caterpillar in particular, they have an energy segment and then they also have a mining segment. And due to rising commodity prices that I believe are continuing to go higher, well, I think their construction segment might you know, have a little bit of issues. Right. I think that the other two segments are going to help it continue rise and retest previous highs and potentially uh, go on to new highs here in the next few months. Those are key levers to have right now, given everything we've just been saying for the construction and housing headwinds. Danielle, turning three buys and a bail on its head today. We'll bring you back as earnings season progresses and see how it's going. Thank you very much for your time today. Danielle Shea. Coming up, whack-a-mole. That's how the TriPoint Home CEO described trying to gauge the housing market. We'll tell you what's got him most concerned next. We're back in two. Welcome back, everybody. Time for some show and tell, where we show you a chart and tell the story. And today, it's shares of TriPoint Homes. On pace to snap a three-week losing streak, they're up about 3% as rising mortgage rates and higher costs hit the housing market. CEO Doug Bauer says juggling all those factors these days is like playing whack-a-mole. Here's what he told Squawk on the Street earlier on. I've never seen so many variables in my 30-plus years affecting our economy. You had this fiscal stimulus that kind of fueled this fire, right? I mean, there's over $5 trillion floated into the economy. And now the Fed is uh, put to a point where they want to put out this fire and they're going to raise rates. And uh, that doesn't even take into account what's going on in Ukraine. So all these variables have had a significant impact in housing. And to his point, the Fed's March rate hike already having a big impact on the market. Mortgage rates sitting just around 5% after hitting five and a quarter earlier this week. There it is live, 4.99. We'll get the very latest figures. And another view from the C-suite, this one, the country's biggest loan originator. That's in just a moment. But first, not even the exotic cars are safe. Hyperinflation is hitting the hypercars, and we'll tell you how much you have to pay up for that lovely one pictured right there. Stay with us. Welcome back. Drivers are already paying more for gasoline, but if you collect exotic cars, you're going to have to shell out an extra six figures just to get the car in the first place. Robert Frank is here with how hyperinflation is hitting hypercars. It's good to see you, Robert. Good to see you, Kelly. Lamborghini yesterday launching a new V10 supercar price tag, $240,000. It's likely going to sell out by tomorrow. Other Lambo models are now taking a year or more for delivery. Now, to get their cars a little sooner, Buyers are paying five or six figures above the already crazy sticker prices. So for Lamborghini's Urus, that's their SUV, dealers now charging an extra 100 grand over the $225,000 sticker price just to move up the waiting list. Rolls-Royce's SUV, that's called the Cullinan, that will cost you an extra $85,000 over the $350,000 sticker if you will want to avoid that weight. Now, McLaren getting an extra $50,000 for its cars. Some Porsche dealers charging 50 grand just to place a regular order for a new 911 Turbo S. Now, production for these cars remains as high as ever, but Lambo CEO says demand has fundamentally shifted with the surge in young wealth. We have a shift into much younger customers. 
so we see that by the year 2025, uh, we will have 70% of our customers which will be younger than uh, 40. Uh, what we see also is that uh, around the world there are more and more people which are able to buy a car like ours, so there are just more of them. And there are even reports of dealers placing phantom orders and then selling those to customers at higher prices when they finally do get the car. So, Kelly, with these prices, both for pre-owned and for existing cars, a lot of games being played by dealers and even some buyers. I mean, why not charge whatever you can charge, right, if, if the consumer is sort of indifferent? I've seen markup prices once you start talking about 50000 even for big, like, F-150 trucks, some of the higher-end models. So Yeah, the Broncos, yeah. twenty grand. It's, it's crazy for cars. And here's what's amazing. The Lamborghini, a pre-owned used Lamborghini, is now selling at 150% of the new sticker price wow. for a Lamborghini, which is crazy. We, the, we haven't reached the ceiling yet for these cars, whatever that ceiling is going to be. So we, you don't think that wealth tide has turned yet? Not yet. They said in March it only accelerated, so wow. we're not there yet. All right, Robert, thank you. Robert Frank, still ahead. Rates are on the rise. It's not hurting demand for Lamborghinis, but it is changing the landscape of the mortgage market. We'll talk to the CEO of Rocket Companies, the biggest originator in the country, about the effects of that next. Welcome back. Those CPI numbers yesterday showed us the cost of just about everything is spiking. It is starting to hit the remodeling industry, coming off a very few strong years. Uh, Diana Olick joins us now from Washington with a new report. A few very strong years, she said. Diana. <laughs> That's right, Kelly. Uh, despite a very strong start to the year, renovation and remodeling professionals are reporting a weaker outlook for Q2 due to rising costs for materials and specifically for gas. House, a remodeling website, just released its quarterly barometer and the so-called expected business activity indicator related to project inquiries and new committed project decreased significantly, as did expectations for project inquiries and new committed projects. Now, the report says construction pros are reporting three months before they can begin work on a new mid-sized project, so they're having to be more selective about which projects they can take on. Then there's the driving factor and gas prices. Finding a contractor with a team willing to drive a significant distance to a project is expected to become more difficult for homeowners, Kelly. And it's not just renovations, obviously. What's the latest on mortgage originations? Yeah, not looking very good on that either. So rising rates are hitting mortgage demand hard. The average rate on the 30-year fixed increased to 5.13% last week from 4.9 for loans with 20% down. Now, a year ago, it was just around 3.25%. As a result, refinance demand fell another 5% for the week and was 62% lower than the same week a year ago. Applications for a mortgage to buy a home did squeeze out a 1% gain for the week, but still down 6% from a year ago. Interesting note, though, a big jump in applications for adjustable rate mortgages from home buyers. They, of course, carry a lower rate, and they made up over 7% of applications. That's the highest level since the summer of 2019. And since rates are rising faster than expected, the Mortgage Bankers Association is now lowering its forecast for mortgage originations to total $2.58 trillion this year. That's a 35.5% drop from last year and down from a previous forecast of $2.61 trillion. So not great for the bankers, Kelly. No, they're sort of catching up with reality or, or giving us a glimpse of what's coming this season as well. Diana, thank you very much.
Now, the surge in mortgage rates has obviously been pressuring, pressuring mortgage lenders because of demand concerns. Shares of Rocket, this is the largest mortgage originator in the country. It's down about 30% since the start of the year, under $10 a share today. Rocket Company CEO Jay Farner joins me now. Jay, it's great to have you here. Welcome. Hi, Kelly. Thanks for having me. You know, it's not your fault <laughs> that this has happened with the mortgage market and the housing market. Uh, so what, what do you do in a situation like this? I've heard that leaning on the servicing side of the business is something a lot of companies are trying to do now. Yeah, well, we have about 2.6 million clients that we service on a monthly basis. So that's a great book of business for us, throwing out uh, monthly cash flow. But I think it's important to keep in mind, yes, we're off record low or record highs, I should say, from a market perspective. But we're still looking at two to two and a half trillion dollars of mortgages being done this year. If you go back to 2018, 2019, that's where, where we were. And so as we see capacity come out of the mortgage market, there'll be opportunity for lenders who stick in, who drive lead flow, who continue to deliver great client service. And uh, as we think about cash out, and I heard you talk about the home improvements uh, changing this quarter, but there's $25 trillion of equity uh, locked up in people's homes right now. And so uh, lenders can help uh, clients activate that as well, pay off rising debt, those sorts of things. So still lots of opportunity, but you're going to have to approach it differently in 2022 versus 2021. What do you anticipate from the Fed's balance sheet sort of shrinkage? Um, if they have to sell mortgage-backed securities outright, what role will Rocket, if any, play in that? Well, we still see a very strong Fannie, Freddie, and FHA market, and that's primarily where our loans uh, go, or the, those, that's uh, the, the type of conforming loans that we do. And so if the Fed isn't buying, it could affect interest rates a bit. We think we're already seeing signs of that with current interest rates. But when you think about it, at five or five and an eighth on a 30-year fixed, payments are up $100, $150 from where we were at the start of the year for clients. After taxes, it's about $100 a month, although up a bit, still really competitive compared to other ways you can borrow money. And so if clients are thinking about making improvements or paying off debt or doing other things, a mortgage still uh, makes a ton of sense right now. Sure. I'm, I mean, there's so many things about this cycle that are different from what we went through in 05, 06. You know, that was a bubble. It was psychologically driven, if I can put it that way. Then we saw a crash. This time around, we're trying to slow a market to kind of avoid the same thing from developing. But even if originations are down, there's still a lot of people who want to buy a house, who want that inventory. And I'm just trying to to foresee what this housing market is going to look like a year from now. How are you investing, planning for that? What do you expect in terms of your business? Yeah, that's a great question. I think it's a really important one. When we think about home owners right now, I think they're recognizing that home values are, are kind of at or close to what we might consider a peak for a while. And so if you're thinking about selling, this summer is going to be a great time to do that. For us, something we call a verified approval, where a client makes application, our underwriters actually approve the loan before they find a home. That was at a record level in January. We had more verified approval clients in our pipeline than ever before. That tells me that clients want to be viewed as cash buyers, and they're going to be very active this spring. So, yes, inventory's tight, but I think we'll see more inventory come online. It's still a great time to buy a home. And like you mentioned, uh, we're still going to have two, two and a half trillion dollars of mortgages done. So it's back to a normalized market. It's not a, a market like two, 2007, 2008, because the quality of the mortgage product is very, very good. As a servicer, I can tell you, people are making their mortgage payments and the mortgages being done in this country are very high quality. So I feel great about the credit risk that the mortgage industry has right now. I hope there haven't been a lot of people taking out arms the, the last couple of years. 
I, I can't think of many people that have benefited from an arm. I heard that referenced uh, with your, your previous speaker. Uh, and maybe some jumbo or larger uh, uh, loans people are doing adjustables, but we're still seeing the 30-year fixed as the preferred product at this point in time. All right. Jay, we'll leave it there. Great to have you on today. Thanks for your time and for all your perspective. We appreciate it. You bet. Thank you. Jay Farner with Rocket. Before we go, some breaking news from WNBC now reporting that the suspect in the New York City subway shooting has been arrested and is in custody. The suspect attacked that Brooklyn subway car, left 29 injured, 10 people shot yesterday morning. We'll bring you the latest as we get it about the suspect who now is reportedly in custody. That does it for The Exchange, everybody. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx.